here in the heart of the jungle, we find one of the most interesting creatures of its kind. Amazon PPC Advertising. Buried deep amongst the undergrowth with its campaigns and targeting, lay hazards like keywords without conversions, unprofitable ad spend, and a mountain of ever-evolving complexity. But if you look beyond the obstacles of life here, there is hope and opportunity. We will journey to every corner of Amazon ads to explore and share the greatest treasures the jungle has to offer. This is the Amazon PPC Den Podcast. What's going on, Badger Nation, and welcome to the PPC Den Podcast, the world's first and longest-running podcast all about Amazon advertising. Can you believe it, gentlemen? 198 episodes all about Amazon advertising. Uh, I'm super stoked today to have uh, someone I've known for years now, Jeff Lieber uh, from Turnkey Product Management. Uh, Jeff, I've known you for years. Thanks so much for coming back on the show. And this time you brought a friend. We, we also have Austin Hoggett on the show too. What's going on guys? Austin, thank you so much for wearing a um, nature themed shirt for the PPC den. You know, we like to talk, <laughs> we like to have like a jungly badgery theme and you've got this awesome like forest shirt on. So thanks so much for dressing absolutely, the park. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, it's a pleasure <laughs> uh, to be Jeff, here. Where, yes, Jeff, where is your forest themed shirt? I I missed the the forest memo. I Paul, I could go change if you really need me to. I could I could wrangle some up from college. I guess maybe I have that like that. <laughs> yes. Um, so yeah, I'm super stoked to have every you guys on the show today. For those that don't know, Jeff, what do you call yourself? Are, are do you call yourself CEO, owner, founder? Uh yeah yeah. All the above. I, I do kind of use those terms. I guess yeah. <laughs> I don't know. It changes from day to day. Uh, and there's so many different kinds of Amazon agencies out there. You guys are full service. So you do everything from PPC mm -hmm. to Google organic, uh, Google organic, <laughs> organic optimization uh, on Amazon. Um, what else do you guys do? And I, and I imagine there's uh, how many people are on your team currently? Yeah, we have over 20 team members now. Uh, when we started, you know, back in 2016, uh, we did not have that many. I think we had about five. So we've grown, you know, pretty significantly. Um, but yeah, we do Amazon full service management, everything from helping people launch from scratch if they're just launching their brand for the first time or on Shopify and have didn't have the time to get around or expertise to launch on Amazon. We can build the Amazon listings, the storefront, build a, a customized launch plan based on their strengths and assets and weaknesses. Um, so that's kind of like where we initially started, but then we realized that, hey, like PPC and DSP advertising um, on Amazon is just such a critical piece, so numbers driven, so crazy. As, as you know, uh, with your guys' awesome software, you live and breathe, you know, how, how hard PPC is. And so, you have to, so, so we realize people want that as a carve out service as well. So we offer PPC DSP management just as a standalone service. And then we also have um, kind of a consulting slash coaching for some companies who want to keep the knowledge in house and they just want to get our systems mm -hmm. and SOPs and things like that. So we, we really try to cater to, to what uh, a client actually needs. Um, so yeah, that's a little bit about us. Right on. And of course, 
to come on a show about PPC, you brought your PPC guy. Uh, so, so Austin, I'm curious, how long have you been doing PPC? Let's just set the stage here. When you, how'd you get into it and how long have you been doing it and what keeps you in the Amazon PPC space? So I got into it through a friend, actually, um, Adam Malat over at Better AMS. He actually oh, get out. kind of, yeah, he's a great guy, but he actually, uh, kind of, you know, led me into the space and helped me kind of grow in the beginning stages. And then, you know, I've been doing PPC ever since then for about a, you know, year and a half. Um, you know, learning under Jeff, learning under everybody that we have at our company as well. Um, the one thing I do like about Amazon PPC is coming from like a baseball background, you know, it's kind of competitive, you know, you got to stay on top of everything. You got to continue to learn. You can't just kind of slack and expect to perform your best. You always got to, you know, continue to learn and get better at it. <laughs> Preach for sure. Um, so for this episode, I'm going to start with a baseball pun since you're a uh, baseball player. Are you ready to hit it out of the park? Oh, absolutely. Does anybody, does anybody ever ask you that? Yes, they always do. They always do. I'm a big guy and they expect it to, you know, me knock it out of the park every AB. Yeah. So we have a, a pretty cool idea for today's episode. We're going to do a rapid fire, five topics, and we're going to see how much value we can get out of five minutes per topic, rapid fire style. Um, so we're going to leave people with some really awesome insight into a wide range of topics. We've got everything from, you know, Amazon PPC strategy techniques, some problems, some common problems that you've been seeing lately, uh, sliding into some DSP work and sort of how to bridge uh, normal PPC campaigns, you know, sponsored product, sponsored brand, sponsored display into the world of DSP. And I actually think the topics that we're going to be talking about for DSP is a really nice on-ramp. You know, we've done content about DSP with different people on the show over the years, like it's a lot of like how to get started, what are the differences type thing. But I mm -hmm. think we did something really cool in our planning. We talked about like the trend, like the, gr the gray area where like sponsored display has limits and then like where DSP picks up those limitations uh, and extends it even further. Um, so I'm super stoked on this. Alrighty, Austin, we're on the clock. So one thing that I love asking is what is a common problem you see when you're auditing accounts today? I think the biggest problem that I do see is mixed match types within campaigns. Um, essentially, each match type is driven by a different intent. You know, broad leaves a lot of room for interpretation because it you know, can include words before, in between, and after the central keyword idea, where it's phrase, you know, it's kind of right in the middle, but you can add stuff at the end. An exact match, you know, is exactly what you want to search up for. So seeing those all in one campaign, um, one kind of makes it hard to see what data is working, seeing, you know, how everything's performing. And two, everything kind of has its own um, cost per click. You know, broad's going to be a little bit cheaper because it's going to be a little bit more risky. It's going to be open for interpretation, whereas phrase and exact are going to be a little bit more expensive because that's what people are, you know, going to be exactly showing up for. Um, so that's one of the big things that I do see when kind of auditing campaigns. And honestly, my best suggestion for that is to kind of separate everything out into its own campaign, but don't make it like a, you know, a slam dunk do right away, kind of gradually transition stuff over. So you don't completely lose momentum within, you know, a top performing campaign or lose momentum for, you know, certain keywords. You know, one question I have about the mixed match types and single campaigns. I agree with you. It's a super common thing. I see it all the time. 
exact phrase broad in one campaign and oftentimes a lot of keywords. I guess the question that some people might have is like, okay, I know they have different CPC ranges. I know like there's different levels of intent, but it's like, so what? Like, what do you notice like house, like spend, a cost, order volume changes when you transition an account that's got mixed match types versus one that's got them split out? Like, what do you actually notice performance wise? I mean, you almost see sales gradually continue to increase when you do separate everything out just because one, you're able to apply a certain amount of budget through to each, you know, match type. So if one if each match types in one campaign, it's t it's pulling that campaign budget to all three of those rather than just emphasizing it for broad or for phrase or for exact. So when you're able to separate it out, not for just budgeting purposes, but you're able to really see the performance and you most likely will see growth from that because everything is getting its own fair share. So, yeah, I agree. I think it's one of the common problems. And I always try to tell people like anytime you have a whole bunch of keywords that share budget, that share placement bid settings all in one spot, and they do have like different requirements for you know, all these different things, like you would want your broad match keywords to have a different budget amount mm -hmm. in your account than you do your exact match keywords. I think it's a, I think it's sort of an intermediate advanced topic that like not all keywords are created the same. Like it means something yeah. when you have an exact versus a broad. And I think like if, if anyone's out there sitting like, you know, I've got mixed match types, like, so what, like maybe the campaigns within my target a cost range. Uh, I think the big things are like magic starts to happen when you can say like, Hey, these exact match keywords deserve a top of search placement bid. That's, you know, a hundred percent. These broad match keywords, they probably only deserve maybe 20, 25% top of search placement adjustment. And you don't know that until you segment these out. Uh, and it's tough because it shares everything. Do you think that, uh, here's an interesting question for you. Do you still think if Amazon were to ever give us placement reporting per keyword and placement bid, place, placement settings, uh, ability to change it per keyword, do you think the importance of segmenting it will decrease? Like people will be able to get away with it more? Um, that's kind of an interesting question because one, you could see it go one of two ways. You could see it, you know, be a good thing, but then again, segmenting everything out and you're having that kind of reporting behind it, you can feel like, oh, hey, this keyword is performing at, you know, this level. Let's put it in its own campaign and kind of have a hero campaign running for it and, mm. you know, give a increase top of search placement bid, increase, you know, aggressive uh, CPC bid and just let it run, see where you can go with it. Already final 30 seconds. Uh, Cause I know like anytime people bring up uh, campaign structure, it's like the hardest thing to optimize for. It takes up oh, yeah. so much time. Uh, final 20 seconds now. What do you say to people who are just like, ah, this seems like so much work. When you take the time to separate it out, you will benefit greatly. Perfect. Let's transition to the next topic. Alrighty, Austin, five minutes back on the clock. So this is one that we've touched on periodically. And this was actually the second biggest issue that you're seeing most commonly, which is branded terms mixed with non-branded terms. So similar to what we just mentioned, where you have a mashup of different things, sharing budget, sharing a campaign, sharing placement settings. Now we're talking about branded terms mixed with non-branded terms in the same ad group or same campaign. Let's start with 
assuming this isn't an issue, and if you wanted to show someone that it was an issue, what report would you download to show them that this is an issue? Like, download. What, what can we what can we point out and say this is an issue? You you can download your search term report and see which keywords are clicking and which ones aren't clicking. Obviously, your branded terms are going to convert at a much higher rate compared to you know the the non branded stuff because non branded is built for awareness, whereas branded people already know your brand. They want it. They've already engaged with your brand. They know you know the products that you sell and all of this. So when those aren't separated out it's going to be kind of hard to divulge in the data and see, you know, what's actually performing within a campaign. Right. So, so I guess the problem is the problem that we would point out is like, you look at a campaign level performance report, it might say 30% ACOS. Mm -hmm. You go and look at the search term report and it's possible that your non-branded terms are like 80, 90% ACOS and your branded exactly. terms are like 5% ACOS. So uh, and people might not know this, right? Like that's, yeah. I think that's, the, the, the way to do it, right? Like download the search and report, point that out and be like, hey, like you're being fooled by your campaign level ACoS. When exactly. in actuality, you've got this big spread. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it kind of relates back to the previous one. And I guess like, how does that get solved um, generally? Like how does that get solved and how aggressive do you attack this? Like, is it a big deal that to have like search terms like all over the place in terms of like, I've got non-branded terms that are super high A cost and I've got branded terms that are super low A cost. Why not keep those in the same campaign? One, because you're really not able to see what's working. So, you know, if you have a branded can or branded keywords within a campaign and those are kind of, you know, carrying along the A cost for that, well, the 80, the 90%, the ones that you're losing money on, you're not really able to identify them as clearly. So it does, it gives you, it doesn't give you an avenue to kind of go down to see, oh, what do I need to test next? What should I target next? You know, where is my audience at when, mm -hmm. you know, the branded ones are continuously carrying that campaign. For sure. I also think it, it just, it adds extra work to find out all that information, right? Like it does. Yeah. You can leave it in the same campaign, but you, there's just like you mentioned, you don't have a clear sense. So like mm -hmm. it takes extra time to figure out like what's going on and, and why to do it. So what do you, what do you say to people that say, Oh, well, branded terms, branded traffic would have converted anyway. So like, I'm just going to add my negative, I'm going to add negative phrase match and add my brand as a negative phrase. Is that something that you recommend? Uh, obviously in the non-branded campaigns. Yeah. Cause you'll want to have everything separated out. You don't want to continue to target, um, you know, your branded keywords in your non-branded campaigns. So negate them, negate them in your auto campaigns or your broad campaigns. That way you don't show up for them. That way you can really see where you are improving, where you're not improving, what you can go after next. What do you generally find is like a, a cost for branded campaigns? Like what do you think people should be targeting in terms of a percentage of their budget, overall budget that they're spending on branded terms uh, and maybe like an expected A cost there? Uh, expected A cost, I mean, usually you see around, you know, 10 to, I would say 10 to 25%, depending on the size of the brand. And then again, depending on how much the, you know, the amount of volume that the brand can do, you know, setting it 25, 30, 40% um, budget to those, and then use that other 60% for your, your kind of awareness campaigns and divulging into that, you know, those new strategies. Mm -hmm. I had a client one time, they were spending like $450,000 a month, like a, a super high amount. And they had a phenomenal problem, which was like, everybody knew about their brand. So like almost every like 60% of their traffic cost 
was branded. Uh, mm-hmm. And it was really interesting. So like in a situation like that, they had to segment out branded terms because they needed to keep all that branded traffic under control. Exactly. And yeah, for sure. And with that, let's move on to the next topic. All righty, third topic, five minutes on the clock. I really think this is an interesting topic. Uh, like I mentioned at the start of the show, this it's never been talked about like this before, but there's like a, um, I know we're on a timer, but there's like a uh, mountain that we're climbing when it comes to start with your sponsored product campaigns, hit that branded and non-branded traffic, take those best keywords, put those in sponsored brands, do sponsored brand video, keep walking up this hierarchy, and then you can start playing with sponsored display. And like sponsored display, you know, we have different kinds of targeting. We can start tapping into these different kinds of things like views remarketing. And what I think is interesting that you brought up in our pre-show is like, you can do views remarketing and sponsored display and you can do views remarketing and DSP. Where does sponsored display like leave you? And then how does DSP like extend that concept and explain what views remarketing is for the good people out there who maybe don't know. <laughs> so views remarketing is essentially, you know, targeting people who have viewed your product or similar products over a certain like look back window um, and re, you know, kind of remarketing your product back to them. So the kind of difference between, I would say, sponsored display and um, DSP views remarketing is DSP offers much more precision, whereas sponsored display, you know, there's not a whole lot of inclusions. Yeah, you can, you know, exclude brands, you can exclude different ASINs and all of this. But with DSP, if you want to get as granular as possible, you know, maybe your audience is available for a three-day view look back window, but you can exclude up to 365 day product purchasers to really just focus on new to brand on sales. DSP. You can do that. Yeah, on DSP. So that I wouldn't say the biggest difference between sponsor display and uh, DSP is definitely the precision. Um, the one thing I would say um, sponsor display is good for, you know, if you're just trying to leverage some of your traffic, but specifically now, you know, we're a couple days or not a couple days, but a day past this prime fall event that we just had in October. You can leverage your traffic from those days and, you know, remarket um, on competitor ASINs, remarket on your own ASINs for up to seven days because obviously the people that looked at your ads throughout these days had an intent to buy or an intent to, you know, kind of browse around the category. So maybe try and capture them in the next seven days post a big holiday. Mm-hmm. So this views remarketing that we have in sponsored display, you know, one question that I get asked a lot is like, you know, can I make sure that the people in views remarketing, is that targeting people who have viewed my product or viewed and purchased my product or maybe viewed and maybe purchased? Um, like, how do you create like negative audiences? Um, is there a way to like prevent, is there a way to sculpt my traffic on sponsored display without going over to DSP? Uh, somewhat, I would say, I mean, you can exclude different brands throughout sponsored display and views remarketing. Um, the sponsored display as well, kind of hitting on this too, but there's purchase remarketing, which retargets people who have purchased in the past, whereas views is going after the viewership. Um, so, you know, not as great with DSP where you can exclude the past purchasers, but with views remarketing, you know, you can only, um, show for, you know, a certain different look back window. But again, going back to your question, yes, you can exclude brands, you can exclude ASINs, um, you can even exclude categories too. So when we get to DSP, being able to like sculpt the way that you do remarketing 
is really interesting. Um, what are some ways that you've sculpted previously? Like, you know, you want to target everyone who's viewed your product in the last 14 days, but you don't want to target, like, what, what are some common exclusions you would put there? So common exclusions, you know, if you want to get as granular as possible, you want to only show through certain windows um, and you have the available audiences, you know, they're all eligible and all of that. Um, excluding 365 day product purchasers is the great one to kind of just focus on your views. Um, and depending on how granular you can get your views, you can begin to target people at, you know, say seven, 14 and 30 day look back windows are all eligible. Well, you can target seven day views and then you can create a new campaign target or exclude seven day views, but target mm -hmm. from that eighth day up to that 14th day. And then same thing for 30 days, exclude the past 14 days and then just target from that 15 to the 30. Yes, that was that's super popular. Uh, in a former life, I did like Facebook remarketing for e-commerce stores, and we would do the same thing. Like, let's spend the most on people in the first seventy-two hours, and then let's spend a little less from like seventy-two hours to like one week, and then spend a little bit less from like one week to three weeks, and then spend even less uh, and have different ROAS targets along the way. So that's something that you get access to in DSP. Uh, that's really interesting. Let's jump over to topic four. Alrighty, one of my favorite things to do inside sponsored product, sponsored brands, and sponsored display is, of course, to do cross promotion. Um, you know, I'm selling oversized uh, mason jars as I'm drinking out of one. Uh, and then maybe I also want to target, I want to cross promote my smaller ones, you know, maybe ones with a different color to see if I can get some nice cross promotion there. Maybe I want to sell complimentary products uh, on it as well. So this is something that we can do in normal sponsored product, sponsored brand, sponsored display. What extra reasons would we have to transition over to DSP? So, I mean, placement is key. So taking up as much branded coverage and as much branded placement you're really increasing your exposure across all you know facets of Amazon. Um, the cool thing with cross promotion, you kind of hit on it, but it's kind of a full catalog approach, especially you know um, if you have certain products that are you know selling through pretty quickly, and you have some that aren't selling through as quickly. You know you can remarket those you know lower selling products to your you know your top selling product. You know for instance, if your multi is selling at you know X amount per day, but your you know your probiotics only selling at Y amount per day you can cross promote those audiences to those multi to try and increase your awareness for the product, increase your sales, um, and you know, really kind of see things grow from that perspective. Another kind of cool thing that is brand new to DSP actually is this new subscribe and save audience function, which essentially you can begin to promote your products to active subscribe and save audiences of selected products. So say, again, going back to the multi and the probiotic, you know, if you're multi, if you're seeing an increase in subscribe and save numbers month over month, why not use that traffic and leverage it for your other products? Yeah, so that's a targeting option we don't have access to in normal sponsor display. Um, Correct. So yeah, being able to get creative with how we do cross promotion. Uh, yeah, it's it seems like there's more options inside DSP in order to do that. Um, I guess you can also do the same thing with, and it's actually funny because I feel like inside normal sponsored products, sponsored brands and sponsored display, a lot of times the word is like called brand defense mm -hmm. where it's like, Hey, I'm going to go play brand defense. Um, and I think 
it's interesting, you know, you spend more time in DSP than I do. And it's like, oh, um, we're, we're like evolving to cross promotion here. And I think that's an interesting, interesting concept. Do you, do you notice that like mindset shift? Like, do you, or do you refer to it more often as ace and defense in the ad console? And then you shift to more of a cross promotional element. Is there any like mindset shift there? Um, I mean, I get I, the really only difference in mindset is one like when I'm thinking of, you know, PPC and brand defense, I'm just thinking of, hey, defending my own turf. Whereas with cross promotion, I'm thinking of in DSP, I'm thinking of, hey, let's get this product to show for this, you know, to audiences for this product. And we're trying to continue to kind of spin the wheel and, you know, attract um, those same customers and really just continue to create that lifetime value for them. Um, so I wouldn't consider it much, you know, defense. I mean, it can be considered defense, but since we are custom building the audiences, you know, I know what I'm going after. Very interesting. Uh, let's jump to topic five. Alrighty, this is kind of the final frontier of Amazon advertising, which is of course, demographic targeting. And, you know, for a long time, what was so great about Amazon advertising was that it was only product ad based. It was only like our ads look just like normal organic listings. People don't really know the difference. They're product ads and they're gonna have a massive conversion rate and like way outpace what you could ever dream of on doing like any display network advertising like, you know, Facebook ads, demographic targeting or Google ads, display network. I think it's so interesting now that like the final frontier, like the sort of the top of the mountain is like at the bottom, you want to hit your basics of like, make sure you capture all of your sponsored product traffic and like take your best keywords and bring those up to sponsored brands. And then like branch out into sponsored display. And then like at the top of it is sort of like demographic targeting where the largest advertisers I know often are doing a lot of DSP. Like, you know, we're just talking about big budgets. What are the characteristics of a company that you think does well doing demographic targeting? And what do you think the characteristics of a brand that does not do well on demographic targeting? Like who is demographic targeting a good candidate for in general, would you say? Uh, definitely probably in the supplement industry. Um, I mean, recreational sports, you know, skateboarding, different stuff like that. Hiking as well. Because, you know, you'll have your certain age groups that are going to be looking to, you know, purchase or just view the product. You know, maybe their friend mentioned something to them and they thought it looked cool, but they don't have the intent to purchase. But then you get into, you know, the, the 20 to 30 to the 40 year olds that are, you know, extremely interested in the product. They want to continue to use it daily. So you can definitely see some different aspects from that. And the cool thing with, you know, demographic targeting is specifically in sponsor or non-sponsored display, but it's specifically in DSP is it does offer you this audience insights through the platform, which does give you a ton of info into those certain demographics. So essentially, you know, you can begin to see, you know, different views, different purchases by age, you know, by age gap. And then you can see the timing purchase or the timing frequency of purchases and stuff like that. So it becomes very granular on the DSP side of things, whereas, you know, maybe the younger generation, you know, maybe 18 to 24, they're not purchasing the multivitamin, but, you know, 25 to 44 are purchasing at an, ex, you know, an exponential rate. So obviously you can hyper-focus your targeting to that group and exclude, you know, the other groups that aren't, you know, necessarily interested in purchasing your product. Interesting. So uh, there's a couple of things to unravel there. You mentioned 
you know, types of products that work well for demographic based targeting. Um, have you ever noticed brands that have a tougher time with demographic targeting, like, or types of products or like, I'm curious on the characteristics of that. Like maybe it's a, uh, price point. Maybe it's like, have you noticed anything? Yeah. That does not I mean, work well. accessories, I would say, um, because those are typically a one-off purchase. So you're not going to see like a repeat or anything like that. Obviously there'll be certain demographics for them, but they'll be a little bit lower just because, you know, if somebody's going to, you know, buy, buy a, you know, $300, $400 pair of sunglasses, they're just going to be focusing on, you know, purchasing that one time. So the views are going to be minimal. They're going to look at it once, be like, Hey, I want this. So I'm going to buy it rather than continuing to come back to it. Now where you will see, you know, growth is, you know, multivitamins and stuff kind of like that. But yeah, just the one-off purchases are most likely, you're most likely not going to see a big change in demographics. It's probably going to mm -hmm. be pretty stable across the board. And that's what I've noticed. Yeah. So, I mean, let's say, you know, we're selling like running gels for runners in sponsored display. I mean, I have the option to go and target some audiences and try to sort of find people who are going to be athletic and like maybe enjoy running and like try to target them. What extra things would I be able to unlock when I transition over to DSP? So, you know, looking at PPC first, you know, obviously you can target, you know, in-market audiences for that product. Well, in DSP, you can target in-market audiences and target the age group for those in-market audiences. So you can really get as granular as possible as you want. So you keep on f like finding the center of the Venn diagram that you want to target. So you can uh, keep filtering. Mm -hmm. Do you, what's your guess on whether or not we'll ever get that sort of stacked targeting and sponsored display? Um, I mean, Amazon's ever changing. They're rolling out tons of new things, you know, month in and month out. So in the future, I could probably see it happening. I wouldn't expect to see it for a few more months or probably six to 12 more months. Um, if they do add that in, it could be, you know, crucial in the difference between sponsored display and, um, you know, DSP targeting. Booyah, we did it. Five topics, five minutes each. We've covered a gamut, we ran a gamut here. Um, how are you feeling? Does it feel like you've just ran um, some kind of sprint workout uh, for baseball? Yeah, I think I just threw seven innings in the World Series. Yes. Um, so yeah, we covered a whole bunch of stuff, like big, big problems that you're seeing time and time again. I also agree mixing match types. It seems to be a pretty popular thing that I'm seeing like at least a few times a week. Branded terms mixed with non-branded topics. I agree there. Like it's more like a problem, like people don't understand their traffic and like they should probably fix that, um, have different views on it. Uh, extending sponsored display into DSP, I think is like a really fascinating topic that, you know, advertisers eventually get to, like I mentioned, as they climb that mountain. So that's really cool. Uh, any final thoughts, Jeff or Austin? Keep everything separate. Yeah. <laughs> I always say like, you want things as segmented as possible uh, without it becoming like an impediment to your analysis. Exactly. So like sometimes people were like, well, what if I only had single keyword campaigns and only had single product campaigns and they have like 500 products and 10,000 keywords, like it would become overwhelming and there'd be a yes. point of diminished returns in terms of that segmenting. So like, yeah, segmented as possible without it becoming too overwhelming. That's, yeah. that's my- that's Solve the problem, but don't continue to create a problem for yourself. Yes. Uh, other cool lesson too is like campaign structure changes don't need to be overnight. Take your time, pace yourself. Um, I always like to, you know, dedicate some time per week to campaign restructuring. Uh, it doesn't need to be done every single day. Uh, it doesn't need to be done all at once. So for sure, Austin, 
Jeff from Turnkey Product Management. Uh, we'll, of course, link to you guys in the show notes. And uh, thanks so much for coming into the Badger Den. Yeah, absolutely. It was a blast. Thanks, Michael. See, ya. See you guys later.